Well, we are continuing our series in the book of Acts, so if you'll find your place in God's Word, we'll pick up chapter 6, but we will cover all of Acts chapter 7 this morning. And I am pumped, excited about this message, and I, I can't wait uh, just to, to dig into what the Lord wants to teach us today. But it's a lot to cover, so uh, buckle up. It's going to be a, a fun ride this morning, but uh, let me just begin this way. I can remember uh, the day that I got so nervous uh, because I had planned that day to ask for Lauren's hand in marriage. And I remember going to her dad, who was rough and tough and um, was a, he was a professional landscaper. So, I mean, this man's hands just swallowed your hand alive when you shook his hand, you know, a big burly guy who. Just uh, his, his cologne was just sweat. That's just the way he was. Right. And I remember the feeling of being so nervous going to ask for his hand, uh, his daughter's hand in marriage. And, and uh, I said, uh, uh, sir, I, I need to ask you something. And he said, yeah, what is it, boy? <laughs> and uh, I said, well, you know, and I had prepared some thoughts, but they all left me at that moment. And I, I said, uh, I would really like to. Um, marry your daughter, uh, I'll, t- I'll take really good care of her and, you know, we'll, uh, we want to have a life together and I'd, I'd like to marry your daughter. And, and he goes, I thought you was going to ask me to landscape your yard. <laughs> well, sure, you can marry my daughter. It was a lot easier than I thought it was going to be. Uh, but I wanted to share with you a story of another young man who felt a call to missions his name's Adoniram Judson, and uh, he eventually went to Burma and gave his life as a missionary in Burma. But before he left, he uh, fell in love with a girl named Anne, and uh, he wrote a letter to her father asking for her hand in marriage. And I want you to hear what his letter said. It was much different from my proposal. Adoniram Judson wrote this letter to Mr. Mr. Hasseltine to get permission to marry the love of his life, Anne. And here's what the letter said. I have now to ask you whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring. To see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure foreign and dangerous to foreign and dangerous lands. And her subjection to the hardship and suffering of a missionary life. Whether you can consent to her exposure to every kind of want and distress. To degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps even a violent death. Can you consent to all of this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you? For the sake of perishing immortal souls. For the sake of Zion. And the glory of God. Can you consent to all of this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with a crown of righteousness brightened by the acclamations of praise, which shall resound to her savior from lost nations now saved through her means from eternal woe and despair. May I marry your daughter. It's much different, isn't it? Anne was uh, married to Adoniram Judson, and she died in the mission field, but not until she had left 7,000 new Christians in a place where previously there had been none before. 
She joined the long ranks of Christians who say it's worth it. He is worth it. And today we are going to look at a man who gave his life. We're going to look at Stephen. And the story of Stephen is not like other heroes in the scripture. You know, you have the story of Elijah who called down fire onto Mount Carmel. You have um, the story of Esther who boldly walked in to see a king even though uh, she knew it could kill her for the sake of the life of her people. You have the hero of David who uh, was brave enough to face Goliath and uh, he was slayed with the, with the stone and the sling. The hero Samson who uh, pushed apart the pillars and brought God's judgment on the evil people. We could go on and on and on telling stories of heroes in the Bible. And many of us read those stories and we think, I want to be like him. But when we read the story of Stephen, maybe our response is a little different. Because Stephen's not known for some heroic action. He's actually known for his martyrdom. Stephen was the first Christian martyr of this early church. You see, persecution had been escalating all the, all the time the church had been born. We, we, we saw early in the book of Acts where threats, they, they were threatened, they were warned. You can't be preaching in Jesus' name anymore. They continued preaching. Then we saw how they were arrested and beaten for preaching in the name of Christ. And, and they were warned, don't do that again. And the, the persecution is escalating until finally we get to this point in the journey where uh, the pot of persecution, if you will, is ready to boil over. So look with me, if you will, at Acts chapter 6. I want to pick up with just who Stephen is, how he's introduced into the storyline. And then we're going to read portions of chapter 7. It's, uh, it's 60 verses, so uh, if we read all of them, I timed it this week, it would take 10 minutes. So um, we're going to read a portion, but I want to encourage you to read all of it this week. And let the word of God wash over you. We will talk about all of it. But I want to read portions of it together. Would you stand with me as we read from Acts chapter 6. And looking in verse 8. The Bible says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, some of them rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said to Stephen, Are these things 
So. And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. And he begins a sermon that begins in uh, verse two and doesn't end until all the way in verse 58. So I'd like for you to flip over and um, I want you to see how he finishes this message. So for the next about 50 verses, Stephen is going to talk about their heritage. He's going to talk about Abraham and the covenant that God gave to Abraham. He's going to talk about Joseph and how Joseph was rejected by his brothers, but raised up by God to rescue the people. He's going to preach about Moses and how Moses was rescued as a baby and raised up by God to deliver his people from slavery. Then he's going to talk about the temple, how David wanted to bring about the temple and Solomon finally built the temple. But how God said, man, God cannot live. He said, I cannot live in a house made by the hands of men. All of those things that they accused Stephen of, he addressed it directly just with their own history. Then in verse 51, he comes out of the history lesson and comes right at their hearts. And here's what Stephen says. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels did not keep it. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. They cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus. Receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said these things, he fell asleep. Father, may we take hold of what Stephen wished to teach us, not just with his sermon, but with his life and his death. That Jesus is better than life. In Christ we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Um, Stephen is brought to us uh, in the scripture, of nar- in the narrative of this scripture, he's brought to us in a unique place. The, the church has grown. Uh, and that growth has caused some internal conflict. We looked at that last time that um, there was a, a group of people who felt um, isolated. There was some cultural tension. The, the Greek-speaking Jews felt neglected and it needed to be dealt with. And so the, the apostles um, 
said, we're going to raise up some leaders to make sure that this need is met. And so they raised up leaders. And one of the, the first among them that was chosen to, to serve the people, to, to serve and wait tables for widows, right? The first one that's named is Stephen. And the description of Stephen is he's a man full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. That's what we know of Stephen is that he's full of the Holy Spirit. But the first thing I really want us to see, I want us to take some principles from Stephen's life and death. And the first thing I want you to see today is God calls us all to serve. This is very simple. Just a a quick, quick few statements here. Stephen is obviously a very capable leader and preacher. I mean, he preaches the longest sermon in the book of Acts. He, he tells us the history of the people of God hitting the highlights. He's, he's like a ESPN highlight reel for the, the story of God as far as the Israels know it, as far as the Israelites know it. So he's a very capable leader, teacher. He's working miracles. The scripture just passes right over that. But he's a miracle worker, much like Peter was. And he's teaching and ministering and doing all kinds of amazing things. And yet, how are we introduced to Stephen? He's been promoted to serve. We're introduced to Stephen as a servant. See, he was honored to accept the role of waiting tables for widows. It didn't matter his accolades or his abilities. He took the place of a servant. I love that this job was not beneath this man of God. It reminds me of John 13. The disciples are having an argument to themselves about who's the greatest among them. I think I'm greater than you are. Jesus likes me more than he likes you. I, I walked on water, Peter might have said. And everybody's like, well, then you sunk. You know, I mean, they're having an argument about who's the greatest. And meanwhile, Jesus Sort of shaking his head, just gets up, goes over, gets a basin of water, takes his coat off and gets down and starts washing feet. There's no question who the greatest is in the room. And yet Jesus chose to do the lowest task. I want to just give a practical exhortation and encouragement to you as a church. Um, There should be nothing beneath us, right? As far as serving Christ and serving people, whether it's taking out trash or sweeping floors or cleaning toilets or or whatever it may be, there should be nothing that's beneath you. That's one of the things we see from Stephen is he's um, honored to serve. Many of you are serving and I want to say thank you for that. Many of you just are are servants. Um, I, I could name several of you right now by name, but I'm afraid I'd miss somebody who... You just see needs and meet needs. That's just who you are. Um, But I want to encourage the rest of us who maybe have not yet found your spot to connect. I want us to look at Stephen's life and see at least this, that God calls all of us to serve. And I want to give you three ways to think about it. Um, I want you to think about it in your skills. He's given you some skills. How how has he gifted you practically? What do you have to offer? He's given you passions, something you're passionate about that you love. What is God wanting you to do with that? Just this week, I had a conversation with one of you who says, I feel like the Lord is stirring me about um, 
women and children, especially in the sex trafficking thing. How, how do you think I can I can get into that for the glory of Jesus? And I was like, let's have this conversation. I don't know, but let's start digging and see what the Lord would have you do, because this is something you're passionate about. I don't know what your passions are, but whatever they are, God's got a place for you. Um, and then thirdly, so skills, passions. And then lastly, sometimes it's just about what is needed. Sometimes that's the best place to just jump in and to begin to serve is whatever is needed. I doubt Stephen felt very passionate about waiting tables. I doubt he looked around and was like, you know what? This is what I've been made to do. But no, it was what was needed. And so he rose to the occasion. I want to encourage us to be a people who serve. Stephen shows us that being a spirit-filled man means to be a serving man. The second thing I want us to see practically from Stephen, and then we're going to get into a little bit of deep water. Practical thing is that God uses ordinary people. God uses ordinary people. You'd almost expect this chapter to be about Peter or maybe about Paul as we're going to continue to read or, or maybe John or one of the apostles, right? I mean, we're, we're seeing a man who um, is doing extraordinary things. He's Working miracles. He's preaching an elaborate sermon. He's standing boldly in the face of, um, of, of religious elite opposition. But he's not a professional. He's an ordinary man. We really don't have much more information about Stephen than this right here. The reality is that Stephen was ordinary, but he was filled with the Spirit. And that's the distinction I want to spend a few moments with. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? So just a little bit of quick theology here. To be filled with the Spirit means to be surrendered and controlled by God. Surrendered to and under the control of God. Uh, There's scriptures, two scriptures I want to reference is Romans 8 verses 9 and 10. Uh, Romans chapter 8 verse 9 and 10. It says this, you, however... Are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. And then listen to this. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. So just a couple of quick truths here. We talk about being filled with the spirit. As we read through the book of Acts, we're going to see that people are filled And then they're filled again. And then later they're filled again. And what I want you to know is that the filling of the Spirit is different from the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. When you become a believer in Jesus Christ, when you um, confess your sin, repent of it, put all of your faith in Christ. In that moment, the Spirit of God comes to dwell within you. And in that moment, you are sealed, is what Ephesians 1.13 says. You're sealed with the guarantee, the promise of salvation. And His Spirit, according to this verse, will not leave you. Listen, anyone who does not have the Spirit does not belong to Him. So the Spirit of God is not going to leave you if you belong to Christ. However, you can have... A surrendered walk with Jesus, filled with the Spirit, filled, empowered, controlled by the Spirit. Or you can not live that way and live defiantly and disobedient to Jesus. 
I want to show you um, in Ephesians 5, there's a unique comparison. Really quick teaching about the Holy Spirit. But Ephesians 5.18 says this. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But listen, but be filled with the Spirit. There's a comparison here and a command. The comparison is don't be drunk with wine. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. So the comparison is the, the controlling effect of alcohol. If any of you, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but if any of you have ever been under the control of alcohol, you know that you, you end up doing things that maybe you didn't intend to do. Maybe you didn't want to do it, and maybe sometimes you regret doing because you're under the control, the influence of alcohol. And what the Apostle Paul is teaching in this text is that being filled with the Spirit is similar in that you are under the control of the Spirit. When you're filled with the Spirit, He's in control. He's making the calls. He's making the decisions. And He's going to lead. You're the back seat. He's in the driver's seat. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. That's the comparison. The command is be filled with the Spirit. That command means surrender your will to Jesus Christ. When I look at Stephen's life, one thing I see in Stephen is he's completely surrendered to Jesus Christ. There's no one else in control, not even him. The Spirit of God is dictating his decisions, his words, his actions. And that's why we look at him today as an example to follow. Stephen is accused. He's, um, when we look at the text, they, they make a, a strong accusation. He's accused of really four big blasphemies. Um, the scribes, the elders, they, they're, they're accusing him falsely of blaspheming against God, against Moses, against the law, and against the holy temple. Now, those are the four big whammies, right? If you, if you blaspheme against those four big things, they're going to kill you. That's what they got Jesus for. And they were just repeating that whole um, that whole cycle to try to put Stephen to death. So Stephen stands to give a defense. First Peter three fifteen. Peter says, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that's in you. But do it with gentleness and respect. So Stephen gives a defense. Here's what we see about Stephen. If you want to jot these things down, he's filled with the Holy Spirit. We talked about that. He's full of the word of God. Colossians says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. How do we know he's full of the word? Well, 50 verses of a sermon where he's just preaching the word on the spot. The spirit of God is giving him the gift of recall. He's able to. Dig back in his mind all the things that he's read, all the stuff that's soaked into his heart. He digs back in there and the Spirit of God is pulling it to the surface and bringing it out of his mouth. He's full of the Word. Remember, these early Christians have been devoting themselves to the Apostles' teaching. They're devoted to the Apostles' teaching and to the Scripture. Are you full of the Word? If you were put on trial, could you give this kind of defense? And thirdly, so he's filled with the spirit, filled with the word. And thirdly, Jesus is giving him the words to say. Well, how do you know that? Well, Jesus foretold this in Luke 21. 
Remember, Luke wrote both his gospel, Luke, and Acts. And in Luke 21, Jesus said this in verse 12 and 13, especially. Jesus said, but before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. Listen to what he says. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Mm. Stephen remembered that and was like, this is my chance to bear witness to Jesus. And look at what the word says. So settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand how you might answer. For I will give your uh, I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. Isn't that amazing? And this text actually says that, that they were debating Stephen, but none of them could respond to his wisdom. Jesus was giving him the words to speak. All right. So we want to be servants. We want to be people, ordinary people, filled with the Spirit. And now thirdly, let's dig into his sermon. I want to move quickly but thoroughly as best I can. Here's the third thing. God's Word points us to Christ. And listen. This whole book is about Jesus. The whole book. It's not, it doesn't just begin here with the New Testament about Jesus. All of this back here was telling you, He's coming. He's coming. He's coming. Every bit of it. From Abraham to Joseph to Moses to the temple. Every bit of it Stephen is preaching and he's saying, look to Christ. Look to Christ. That's what this book is about. God's Word points us to Christ. I love how he begins his message with great gentleness and respect. He says, brothers and fathers, please hear me. And then he goes on a tirade, giving them a historical message that not only shows them the truth that Jesus is their history, but shows them the mirror of how they have rejected him for all their lives. He begins with the God of Abraham. He says, the God of our fathers is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the God who gave us the covenant. Abraham's covenant with the sign of circumcision. That covenant means that we will be forever the people of God. He will bless us and bless the nations through us. That's the Abrahamic covenant and what we see. Getting ahead of myself. I hold that. That's the covenant that God gave to Abraham. And what uh, Stephen is preaching is you're still missing it. With Joseph, he talked about how Joseph was the 11th son of Abraham, uh, 11th son of Jacob. He was rejected by his brothers, the patriarchs. That's a radical truth. The patriarchs, the ones that Israel looked to as their heroes. What Stephen is saying is all your heroes rejected the one whom God had chose. Joseph's brothers threw him in a pit and sold him as a slave for a handful of silver. Does that sound familiar? 
He was betrayed for a handful of silver. He suffered at the hands of his own. He was falsely accused by his master's wife and imprisoned. He was in jail and he was forgotten and betrayed by a friend. But God raised up Joseph to be the rescuer of the people, including his brothers whom he forgave by trusting in God's sovereign hand for good, even through what they meant for evil. If you remember what Joseph said, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Joseph, then he turns to the story of Moses. He says, you know, Joseph died and the people of Israel grew. The Hebrews grew in number so much that Pharaoh felt threatened. A a different Pharaoh. He didn't know Joseph felt threatened by them. And he looked and said, you know what we've got to do? We need to kill their babies. He issued an order to kill all the babies of the Hebrews. That's an interesting parallel, isn't it? The same thing happened with Herod when Jesus was on the scene, afraid that he'd heard a rumor of a new king coming. And he said all the children under under a certain age of the Hebrew people are to be killed. An interesting parallel. Moses is a baby who is miraculously preserved. He's laid into a basket, floated down the river. It just so happens coincidentally to land in the arms of the Pharaoh's daughter. She picks up this beautiful child, falls in love and wants to bring him into her home. But she can't nurse him. So she takes him to the Hebrew mothers. Can anyone nurse him? And coincidentally, Moses's mother gets to nurse her own baby. Not only that, she gets paid to do it. Oh, how God provides. This is the story of Moses from his beginnings, but at 40 years old, after being trained and raised in the wisdom of Egypt, it comes into his heart to rescue his Israelite brothers. And he goes and he sees the oppression of a brother and he in defense of a brother, he strikes down an Egyptian and kills him. And he thought, Stephen reminds us, that they would see that he's here to save them, but they didn't. The Bible says that they thrust him aside and rejected him as their ruler and judge. Does that sound familiar? So Moses runs for his life. Forty years he spends in the wilderness, raises a family there, thinks he's going to start over. And at 80 years old, God comes to him in a burning bush and says, I told you I want you to free my people. I'm sending you to Pharaoh. And through miraculous signs, even the walking through the Red Sea, Moses delivers the people of God from slavery. But they rejected him again as ruler and redeemer. Moses went up on Mount Sinai and the Lord spoke to him and gave him the law. Moses came down off the mountain to find what? The people of God had built a golden calf to worship. The very laws that God was given, even the first one, you should have no other gods before me. They had broken the law before they even got it. And God gave them over to their idolatry. But the people of God, beginning with David, began to want to build a temple for God. All the other gods have a temple. We want to build a temple for you, God. And God said, no, no, I'm, I'm a... I'm a tent kind of God. I want you on the go. I want to I want to go with you. I want to be with you, but I want to go with you on the go. 
David said, but we want to build you a temple. It'll be beautiful. It'll be beautiful. And God said, okay, but you can't build it. Solomon will. Solomon, your son Solomon, he'll build my temple for me. But the people loved the temple more than they loved God. And God said, I can't dwell in a temple made by human hands. Did I not give you all of these things? This is the lesson that Stephen is teaching. He's dealing with everything they've accused him of. Blasphemy against God, against Moses, against the law, and against the temple. Stephen is addressing all of those things. But here's what he's saying. Our God is a covenant-keeping God. And Galatians 3 teaches us that if you are in Christ, then the covenant God gave to Abraham is yours according to promise. So Christ is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Joseph is a type of Christ. Think about how he pictures and paints the portrait of Jesus. He's hated and betrayed by his own. He suffered but was raised up to rescue his people. He gives gracious forgiveness to the undeserving. This is our Savior, Jesus. Moses, also a type of Christ, he was miraculously spared as a baby. He delivered his people from slavery. Jesus delivers his people from slavery to sin. Moses, the lawgiver. Jesus, the law fulfiller. And the temple, it was man's idea. The tent was always God's plan. And so in the new covenant, God makes it right. By his Holy Spirit, God doesn't dwell in a building. He dwells in you and he wants to be the God on the move. And so he says to you, as you go, make disciples and I'll be with you. I have all authority in heaven and on earth and I'll go with you. He dwells in the body of a believer, but he dwells in his people. The body of Christ has become the collective temple of God. We need not a building. We are the temple of God. Peter says, like living stones, where Christ is the chief cornerstone. And we come together a beautiful mosaic of the people, the temple of God. Stephen's gospel-centered, Christ-exalting sermon didn't get him applause. It got him killed. They were enraged at his words, grinding their teeth. My mother used to do that. Uh, when the three boys, I'm scared of having two boys, by the way. I'm excited, but I'm scared because I know, I know where they're coming from. <laughs> and uh, the three boys that my mother raised, I can remember... Oh, I, remember, I could tell stories, but I'll spare you. I just remember this. Don't you ever do that again. <laughs> right through those teeth. It comes, there's just something that just grinds the teeth. And these men are enraged. Grinding their teeth at Stephen. They run at him, yelling, plugging their ears like raging little seven-year-olds. Like, ah! Right? No, I don't want to hear another word. And that's what it is. Stephen had just accused them of something. He told them, you're stiff-necked, uncircumcised in heart and ears. Let me tell you what he means. Stiff-necked. If you're writing that, you might want to write Jeremiah 7, because that's where that comes from. But stiff-necked, here's what it means. How many of you in the room, raise your hand, if you have ever ridden a horse? Anybody ridden a horse? Okay. 
you've ridden a horse, you, you have bit bridle, you've got the reins, and you're riding along, and you want to make a turn, what do you do? You pull on the reins, right? When you pull, that horse's neck turns the way you want him to go. What happens if you have a stiff-necked animal? He goes wherever he wants to go, and you go on with him. And Stephen is saying, you are a stiff-necked people. You will not be led by your God. You're stiff-necked. doesn't matter how hard he pulls on you. You just refuse him every which way. And then he says you're uncircumcised in heart and ears. Here's what he means. You might have the sign of circumcision in your flesh, but your heart, you have no affection for this God. And you won't hear a word that he says. The contrast between these religious elite and this ordinary spirit-filled man couldn't be greater. We see they are full of anger. He's full of the Holy Spirit. They're totally out of control. He is calm and at peace. They're blind to spiritual truth. Stephen can see into heaven. The contrast couldn't be greater, but the the bulk of Stephen's message, while it's littered with history and beautiful truth, here it is. Jesus is better than life. And that's our last and final truth. Jesus is better than life. He had Stephen had every opportunity to spare his own life at any point. He could have said, hey, calm down, guys. It's okay. I'll, I'll just stop. I'll just quit saying those things. It'll be fine. Just I see you're angry. He had every opportunity. But he didn't choose self-preservation. He chose Christ's exaltation. With his life, his ministry, his message, and now his death, Stephen is declaring Jesus is better than life. He's thinking back to the words of Christ in Luke 9, 24, when Jesus says, if if anyone wants to come after me, he'll have to take up his cross, right? But in verse 24, he says, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses it for my sake will save it. And as he's being stoned, Stephen gazes up into heaven, probably just the same way they did at Jesus's ascension. He looks up into heaven gazing and he saw him. The song we just sang. I see your face. It's beautiful. Stephen sees Christ. And what's he doing? He's standing He's standing. Jesus is standing at the right hand of God. This is the only place in Scripture we see that. Jesus is normally seated at God's right hand. Seated in authority. Seated in control. Seated with power. But here, in this moment, He stands. I don't want to conjecture with all the many reasons as to why. But I'll I'll tell you what I think. I think He stands in affirmation. He stands in affirmation. Jesus is saying, let the world call you a fool. I'm affirming you. You're declaring with your life, Jesus is better. I affirm that. Jesus stands in affirmation. He stands in acceptance. Acceptance. 
Everybody else is rejecting and Jesus is receiving. Everybody around is saying, no, no, no. And rejecting the prophet Stephen. The great irony here is the story Stephen just told about Joseph being rejected and Moses being rejected and so on and so on and so on. It's being fulfilled again. In this moment, God has now sent Stephen to be a prophet. And they're rejecting him. And Jesus stands to say, let them reject you. I accept you. And he stands, Jesus stands as advocate. Probably most significantly of all. Let the enemy accuse you, Jesus says. Let the enemy accuse you of whatever they want to accuse you of. You be faithful to me and I'll be your advocate now and forever. I'll stand in your defense. And we can look to Christ, all in this room who have surrendered to Jesus. Look to him as your advocate. Jesus stands for all those willing to suffer for him. Stephen was condemned by men, but commended by Christ. Stephen endured judgment of his brothers, but enjoyed the salvation of the Son of God. I want to just close for a moment with this thought. Stephen's last words are prayers to Jesus. It's like he's looking right at him. And he's on his knees. The stones, the weight of the stones are just... Burying him, but he can't be silenced by stones. On his knees, looking up into heaven, he has two prayers, and I think they're powerful. Listen to what he prays. He prays for the welcome of the Lord. For the welcome of the Lord. He says, Lord, receive my spirit. And in these last moments, even in his dying and praying, he points us to Christ on the cross. Jesus prayed the same way, Lord, receive my spirit. This is a prayer for eternal grace. We're reminded that heaven is being with Jesus. Earth may reject you, but Jesus receives you. And his second prayer is for the forgiveness of the lost. He prays for the welcome of the Lord and the forgiveness of the lost. He's not just praying for eternal grace for himself, but saving grace for them. And I love what he says. He says, do not hold this sin against them. That's almost a direct quote from the cross, isn't it? Jesus dying on the cross, people spitting on him. He says, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. They know not what they do. And Stephen echoes the words of his Savior by saying, don't let my death be their debt. And God is so faithful. We'll look at this next time. But there's a man standing there for whom God is going to answer that prayer immediately. The young man named Saul. The young man named Saul will not be held accountable for the murder of Stephen because the grace of Jesus Christ in answer to Stephen's prayer is going to forgive him. We'll look at that next time, but I want to give you a couple of quick takeaways. This is not about you. It's not about me. Life is not about me. Rick Warren taught me that years ago in a little devotional he put out. It's not about 
you. From Stephen, we learn it's not about my position, I can be a servant. It's not about my agenda, I surrender my will to the Spirit of God. And it's not about my safety, it's about His glory. Jesus is better than life. So give yourself to serving God in your skills, your passions, and whatever you see around you, a need that you can meet. Be filled with the Spirit of God and fill your mind and heart with the Word of Christ. Lastly, Jesus is worth dying for. It's easy, I think, sometimes for us to say that. But you're never really in danger of dying for Him if you're unwilling to live for Him.